This time of year, many around the world are decorating for the holidays. And at least in the Northern Hemisphere, we're entering the darkest and coldest weeks of the year. This means that each degree on the thermostat and each strand of Christmas lights translates into increased energy use. We often take the source of energy for granted, just so long as we can turn on the light switch. In this episode, we discuss the importance of energy in our society and explore the aspects of the energy transition away from fossil fuel-based energy production. Listening to the podcast Advancing Sustainable Solutions, where we make sustainability research meaningful for the everyday person. This podcast is produced by the IIEE at Lund University. Energy communities, energy democracy, and participation in energy production. In today's episode, we will explore these concepts in greater detail and ask the question, how can communities come together to take more control of their energy production? My name is Carolina Södergren. And my name is Stephen Curtis. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, Advancing Sustainable Solutions. You know, it's been a few weeks since our last episode, and we're back now working from home, like many of you. And we're also hunkering down for a careful and cozy holiday season here in Sweden. You know, my partner and I, we actually put up our Christmas tree at the end of November. A lot of people told us that that's quite early, but I have to say it was a really great decision. It brought so much festivity into our home, and it's something that we both felt we needed this year more than maybe years past. And Caroline, I can certainly relate to this question that you posed at the beginning of the podcast, right? Uh, Where my electricity comes from. As I plugged in the strands of lights on our Christmas tree, Caroline, I'm wondering, how are you getting into the holiday spirit this year? Yeah, um, it's a bit of a special year, of course. We also decorated our Christmas tree very early. And in Sweden, there is a lot of baking tradition. So we've made some gingerbread cookies. There is something called Lussebullar. There's also the Lucia celebration coming up on the 13th of December. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. And, you know, I think however we find ways to celebrate this time of year, we have to do so in a way that uh, makes sense given our context and what we're comfortable with. Um, But, you know, in this episode, we want to talk about something different, maybe a different kind of light in the world. We want to invite you to think about a future world where everyone can be involved in producing your own energy, which is both local and sustainable. And we'll explore how the energy transition can address equity issues around participation, distribution, as well as accessibility. Maybe it's installing solar panels on your roof if you own a home, or investing in a community or cooperative wind turbine if you have that opportunity as well. And we'll also consider who is and who is not involved in energy production. And while we look towards the future, we also acknowledge the very present reality of the COVID-19 pandemic. We know these are challenging times and we're all asked to make many sacrifices to reduce the spread of the virus. We're doing our part here at the IIEE by recording the podcast at a distance. We have had to adjust our recording schedule and take additional time to produce this month's episode. We are grateful for your understanding and hope that you'll enjoy this episode. 
You know, Carolina, this is the first time on the podcast that we're actually talking about issues around energy, uh, surprisingly, because we have a lot of research and many colleagues that are interested in this particular issue. At the end of today's episode, we'll talk with two of our colleagues researching energy communities and energy justice. Yanni Palm and Daniela Lazaroska join us via Zoom to share more about their research about energy communities within the European Union. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's spend a few moments discussing energy in society, including the need that we have right now for a significant structural change to our existing energy system and some approaches being implemented in Europe to do so. Energy is one of the main building blocks of the global economy. But more than that, we use energy in some form or another in almost every activity that we do throughout the day. From sourcing our water and heating our home to powering the internet, charging our mobile phones and storing data in the cloud. Maybe you're cooking right now. I know that I always listen to podcasts while I'm cooking. Well, think of the energy that it took to heat up the pot on the stove or power the microwave the next time that you're cooking. Would you enjoy your food as much if it were not cooked and warmed properly using energy? Would it even be possible to cook what you'll eat for dinner tonight without using energy? I mean, me and my partner are quite outdoorsy, so I think we might be able to make up a fire, but it would definitely take longer than just putting up the stove. Yeah, certainly for me too. But, you know, we are, we're super privileged to live in Sweden where access to energy is fairly ubiquitous. In fact, though, roughly one billion people around the world lack access to energy. And efforts to increase access to sources of energy are hampered as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. But one trend we are seeing in the sustainability discourse now is that access to energy should be a human right. But what exactly does that mean? Well, it means that every person, family, and community should have access to energy in order to fulfill the basic human needs, for example, food, water, shelter, and safety. With the right set of policy and business solutions, we can achieve fair access to energy, especially with achievements in technology, which allow for decentralized energy production and storage. Yeah, but unfortunately, that's not the case today. The concept of energy justice is emerging to consider how these policy and business solutions might affect individuals now, as well as to ensure the participation in the decision-making process. Now, in preparing for this episode, I learned of the concept energy justice for the first time. And when used as a framework for business and policy solutions, it utilizes several principles, including what they call the three A's, availability, accessibility, and affordability. Some nuanced difference there, but certainly important to think about, as well as other principles, for example, transparency and accountability in decision-making, sustainability of the energy sources themselves, as well as intergenerational equity. Another principle worth noting is responsibility. Who has the responsibility to balance the economic, social, and environmental challenges stemming from energy production? In Europe, over the course of several years, the European Commission has put together the Clean Energy Package. The package consists of eight policy acts concerning energy performance of buildings, renewable energy, energy efficiency, governance and electricity market design. Now member states have one to two years to implement the new directives into national law 
no later than May 2021. Now, as a result of the clean energy package, EU law recognizes that you, as a citizen, have a right to invest in producing your own energy and connecting to the existing energy system. If you find that there are any legal barriers to producing, storing, selling, or even owning your own renewable energy, the government has the duty, the responsibility, to make sure that you can do so. Now, this means ensuring that there are no legal, no technical, no social barriers standing in your way to be involved in the production of your own energy. Empowering, right? And many EU countries have already created the support mechanisms necessary to reduce the upfront costs associated with investing and installing private or community renewable energy systems. There is also increasing resources for people to learn more about installing renewable energy systems and accessing the energy grid. Because if I think of it myself, it can be overwhelming. We'll share some of these resources later on in this episode. Yeah, but before we get to those resources, we wanted to just touch on a way in which people are overcoming some of these challenges. And that is through joining what are called energy communities. But really, what are energy communities and how may you participate in community energy renewable projects? Let's find out. Energy communities refer to groups of citizens that organize themselves to collectively take action on renewable energy, energy efficiency, or other energy-related activities. Three points seem to summarize what they are essentially about. Participation, ownership, and impact. Do you want to explain what this means, Stephen? Sure. Yeah. So to your first point regarding participation in energy communities, right? Energy community projects should be open to all potential local members based on non-discriminatory criteria. It should also be voluntary in the way that leaving an energy community should remain possible for members without losing access to the network. For the second point around ownership, I think this is a really important point where we're seeing more research and and interesting business models and, and cooperative spaces emerge, and where ownership in energy communities primarily lies in the hands of citizens, local authorities, or smaller businesses whose primary economic activity is not the energy sector. Typically, energy community members obtain democratic control over energy investments by becoming co-owners of renewable energy installations, usually using the principle of one member, one vote. The third point regarding energy communities is that of impact. What is the primary purpose of an energy community? And in this case, it's often to generate social and environmental impacts or benefits rather than focus on financial profits. Besides this, it is important to remember that energy communities are incredibly diverse when it comes to ownership, governance, organizational structure, financing mix, etc. The most common type are energy cooperatives that were established during the introduction of renewable support schemes. But limited partnerships, development trusts and foundations are other types of structures that allow for citizens' participation and ownership in renewables. Energy communities also vary according to the type and scale of activities that they promote, as well as in the energy sources they use. In Europe, the most common form of activities involves energy efficiency and energy generation. Examples are school buildings or farm roofs equipped with solar panels or windmills installed by residents in a village. 
solar biomass installations, heat pumps, and district heating networks are other popular energy sources used for these purposes. Yeah, so as can be seen from these examples, one of the positive aspects of energy communities is that they can create local value by implementing local energy projects. And these are aimed at energy independence, reducing CO2 emissions, as well as energy poverty elimination. We'll talk more about that in the next block of the podcast. They also contribute to the local economy by generating local jobs and avoiding the outflow of financial resources from the region, especially to some of the bigger energy producers that we see in our society today. All of this helps to create a community feeling and a sense of trust among those participating in an energy community. It's really fascinating. Have you ever been in contact with an energy community, Stephen? <laughs> no, I haven't been in contact with an energy community, but after today's discussion, I certainly want to. They sound super cool and, and empowering to be in control of your own energy production. Maybe something I can look into here in my community here in Sweden. I do know this, though. In Europe alone, there are about 3,500 so-called renewable energy cooperatives. This is a type of energy community which are found mostly in northwestern Europe. Uh, but the number is even higher if you expand globally when you're including all the different types of energy initiatives. That is amazing. Well, despite this impressive number, energy communities are still seen as somewhat of an emerging research field. That's why we're extra lucky to have one of the world's leading energy community researchers working at our institute, Jenny Palm. We asked Jenny to join the discussion and how she thinks the field will develop with time. Yanni, hi. Hi, nice to be here. Yeah, Yanni, we're really glad to have you here on the podcast to enlighten us with your knowledge. Now, you're one of the leading scientists working on the topic of energy communities. We wanted to ask you to share a little bit more about your background. What spurred your interest to look at energy communities specifically? Yeah, what triggered my interest in energy community is this idea with ordinary citizens coming together and jointly owning a renewable energy production or jointly involving in storage of energy or jointly own a distribution grid. I think that is a very inspiring development of the energy system. Uh, and these energy communities have the potential to be disruptive innovation that can challenge the traditional business models of these large energy utilities. So they have the potential to turn the energy system upside down and give back the power to the people. And I think this is really exciting. And this is something I want to know more about. Yeah, it must be really exciting to sparehead an emerging research field like that. How and where do you see things evolving from here? What needs to be done? Yeah, these energy communities are still a niche phenomenon. Uh, for energy communities to emerge, they need resources such as access to capital, technical knowledge and entrepreneurial skills. So far, the potential to diffuse and to engage a wider part of a society has been limited. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of things is happening right now. 
we see increased opportunities when it comes to citizen engagement in the energy systems. The shares of renewables in the system are increasing every day. We see promising developments in energy storage technology. Uh, and there is a rise in technologies that allow for customers engagement that also creates a value with demand response. And with that, I mean that you as a customer can benefit from engaging in the system, for example, to use electricity more efficiently. And that hasn't been the case before. So I think this is an important development. So we have more and more motivational factors that are emerging and that will encourage people to participate in the new ways in the energy system. Uh, and the last years, we have also seen the development of new energy communities that are characterized by greater diversity of participating actors. And also we have seen these different types of partnerships and coalitions between, for example, citizens, industries and municipality. So I think that there are a lot of things happening that is very exciting. But we also need to learn much more about these communities uh, and we need to explore and evaluate the potential to contribute to more sustainable and inclusive energy systems. So there are still a lot of work to be done here. Yeah, and I guess this is why this is a particular area of interest for you in, in your research and certainly looking forward to following your work in that regard um, as it relates to Swedish and EU and, and more broadly policies in this area. But I'm uh, in, the, in the podcast, we always try to bring everything back to the individual, to our listeners. What can they do to engage in the topic? And as such, I have the question, what do you think as individuals, how do they engage in energy communities? Yeah, there are a lot of activities going on in Sweden and elsewhere. Uh, so I think an easy way to engage is to join an existing energy community. If you look uh, Google, for example, and look for a community that has started to engage in, for example, wind power production or building a solar park, then you can become a member there. And I know when speaking to all these energy communities, I know that they are welcoming new members and they will be very happy if you also want to be an active member and not just a passive one. So there are a lot of opportunities out there, I would say. If you want to start up a new energy community, it requires a little bit more work, I would say. But there are some good guidebooks out there that can support you. So we have, for example, a project called co2munity.eu that has a very good handbook on the website. Or in Sweden, you can contact Companion, for example, but there are others out there. So, so I think that there are many possibilities, actually. Thanks so much for sharing those insights. I don't just speak for myself when I say that this conversation has created some real curiosity. And it's really empowering to hear that we all as citizens have a role to play in this important transition. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, Yanni. So that sound means it's time in the podcast to connect today's theme to existing news happening around the world. And I have to say, we were really excited to learn that there was a launch of a brand new handbook to support individuals on how to set up energy community. The organizations behind the, the handbook include Friends of the Earth, Energy Cities, as well as an organization called rescoop.eu. Thus far in the podcast, we've discussed that community energy is key to act on the climate crisis, boosting local economies and reinvigorating communities. But how do we make this happen? This handbook, titled Community Energy, A Practical Guide to Reclaiming Power, aims to walk youth through how to start an energy community step by step. 
Gathering expertise from 27 projects around Europe, this guide is filled with instructions, practical tips, success stories, and valuable resources to build a local community-led renewable energy transition. Whether you're a curious individual, a group embarking on a renewable energy journey, or a local authority making plans, this manual is for you. Covering everything you need to get started with your very own community energy project, from tips to handle group dynamics, advice about what technology to use, to guidance on overcoming any barriers you might face. And if you want to learn more about energy communities, as well as receive a link to this handbook and other resources that we'll talk about throughout today's episode, make sure you're subscribed to our newsletter. Each month, we sound out a reminder email announcing new episodes, which include show notes, access to research output, and additional information about our monthly sustainability scoop. You can sign up on our website, www.iiee.lu.se backslash podcast. For some people, engaging in energy communities and producing their own energy is not only an interest, but a form of protest against the current energy system. They advocate something called energy democracy. Yeah, so energy democracy is a counter-response to centralized energy systems. It promotes a decentralized energy system that is characterized by several small-scale energy production facilities located in close proximity to consumers like us, the people that use the energy. The consumers in a decentralized energy system, they're active prosumers who own shares of a local energy system and take part in the decision-making as well as the energy production. But energy democracy is also an ideology. Carolina, tell us more. So advocators of energy democracy believe that energy should be a human right and that the energy production should be environmentally sustainable. They claim that the only way of creating a system that accommodates people's needs while being powered by renewable energy sources is by putting the control over it in the hands of ordinary people. On the surface, energy communities and energy democracy may look similar, and to some extent, the concepts do overlap, but they also differ in some ways. So for example, energy democracy is a more activist approach to energy production and has its roots in social movements, which you can tell when you hear its goals. They are usually summarized by what are called the three R's. What are those three R's, Carolina? The first R stands for resist. Energy democracy wants to resist the use of fossil fuels by promoting renewable energies, such as wind and solar power. The second R stands for reclaim. Energy democracy wants to reclaim the control of the energy sector. Rather than having the decisions made by a few large corporations and the state, energy democracy advocates for decision-making processes that include communities and citizens. The third R stands for restructure. Energy democracy wants to reform the energy sector to promote democratic processes and social justice by emphasizing direct participation in the energy system and the production of energy. This rationale is based on the notion that people should have control over the decisions that shape their lives. People should have the right to decide who owns and operates the energy system, how the energy is produced and for what purpose. So those three R's, right? Resist, reclaim, restructure. All of this seems very well in theory, but how feasible is energy democracy in practice? Is it realistic to think that people will have the time and energy to learn about and understand a complex system, let alone engage in the decision-making process? 
In fact, are people even interested in taking on this added responsibility? Thus far, evidence suggests that in reality, participation in energy democracy requires certain social and economic status. Those who have been observed to participate generally belong to a privileged middle class, you could say. This raises the question, is energy democracy for all or only for certain groups in society? So far, there has been a tendency in academia to assume that energy democracy entails improved democracy rather than actually demonstrating that community energy is more democratic. In other words, it is yet to be demonstrated that energy democracy actually holds all of its promises. There's this really interesting case, right, that took place in Poland, uh, which may exemplify a little bit more about what we're talking about here. This case demonstrates exactly how complex these matters are. The city of Gdansk attempted to remedy poor living standards in the city district called Letnica. But the attempts had unintended and quite severe consequences. What happened was this, right? The houses in the district of Letnica were renovated to improve their energy efficiency and the living standards of the residents living there. The heating systems were changed and the insulation was enhanced. However, due to the rising rents that followed these renovations, a majority of the original residents could not afford to live there anymore. Sure, the energy use of the house was improved, but it came with the cost of increased rents, which meant that the original residents were forced to move away. This case shows how complex these matters can be, and that there are often trade-offs between environmental sustainability and social sustainability. This case also shows that sustainable energy, to some extent, is a matter of economic status. Thanks, Stephen, for sharing that. What do you, our listeners, think? Is energy democracy the solution to the energy system? Let us know what you think by reaching out on social media or by sending an email to podcast at triple It is so interesting, this connection between energy communities and energy democracy. Yeah, I agree. And to make it even more interesting for our listeners, one of our colleagues has dived deeper into this question of participation, especially linked to issues involving gender in energy democracy and energy communities. We're really happy to have her with us here today. Hi, Daniela. Hi. Daniela, you work at the IIIEE as a postdoctoral fellow. Do you want to tell us a bit about your background and about the current project that you're involved in? So I'm an anthropologist and I work in a project that explores participation in solar energy communities in Sweden, together with uh, Professor Jenny Palm that we got to talk to today from the IIIEE and Professor Anna Bergek from Chalmers University of Technology. So as you mentioned, while energy communities are emphasized by the European Union as important for developing sustainable energy systems that would include and engage a lot of people, we lack the knowledge of how and under what conditions that is the case so how they can be accessible to multiple groups. And this is where our project comes in, as we want to see which citizens choose to participate and what the barriers are for those that might be left out. So this sounds like really interesting research. Maybe if we start from the beginning, do we know what affects participation? 
So case studies from Germany, for example, show that despite the ideals of equality and potential of such communities, the majority of the participants tend to be middle-aged white men. And we can see from existing research that participation in energy decision-making is influenced by social and economic factors, including gender, educational and class background, ethnicity, home ownership, etc. Our research will span over three years, and we intend on looking at several of these factors. At this stage, we look at gender, as it seems to be quite connected to the extent of engagement in solar communities in Sweden. Thanks, Daniela. But how come you do that? I mean, why is gender important? Gender is embedded in everything we do. Uh, women have lower social status than men in most societies, which has consequences in terms of opportunities and workloads. Energy systems are not exempt from such role differentiations and divisions, as men are the primary actors that have access to and control of energy as a resource. Despite this, relationships between gender issues and energy systems have not really received that much attention by researchers, and particularly not in the global north. We hope to make power relationships more visible, even in contexts where equality is taken for granted. That, we believe, will create opportunities to diversify who manages and who benefits from energy systems. Yeah, so this seems like a really important discussion to be having in society, but maybe for some of us that are having a, a difficult time relating gender with energy, what do you mean by gender in the first place, especially in talking uh, in relation to energy communities? So gender implies roles that are socially rather than biologically constructed. I also want to point out that we address gender in binary terms by speaking of uh, women and men in this project. This really doesn't reflect our perspective on the complexity and multiplicity of genders, but the decision is connected to the type of data we have been able to gather and the member classifications that we have been able to access. This is definitely a limitation of our work, and I think it's important to point out that gender not only needs to be further explored in energy studies, but also nuanced and problematized with intersectional perspectives. Yeah, what do you mean by intersectional perspectives? So I mean issues of class, ethnicity, disability, for example. That's a really valid point. Thanks for bringing that up. If we dive into the work you've done in Sweden now, what would you say the situation is like here? As it is a qualitative research project, we have so far mapped the solar energy communities in Sweden and interviewed board members at this stage and hopefully participants in these communities later on. It's all done online due to the pandemics. So we found nine currently active solar energy communities and three in the making. They vary in membership, having between eight and 300 people on board. The percentage of women involved varies between 23 to 48%, with a majority of the associations reporting rates closer to 30%. So they are run by a board of members, and a majority of the board members are male, with a rate of females varying between 20 to 30%. The chairpersons are exclusively male. In our interviews, we have tried to interview both male and female board members and get their, their perspectives. Yeah, was there anything interesting you learned from your interviews? So surprisingly, many of our research participants perceive their communities as quite inclusive. This ties into a tendency that also exists in research to reproduce assumptions on the egalitarian democratic ideals of energy communities. To be blunt, this is questionable if the majority of those investing in these communities are middle-aged white men. Our position is that participation as a concept and as a practice needs to be questioned. Researchers need to ask what it is actually to participate in these communities and if it is more than just purchasing a share. Also, who are the actual decision makers and how do the power relationships look there? A representation of women on boards does not directly translate into inclusive decision making. 
That's why we also point out that more research needs to be done on the social interaction during board meetings, for example, to see how decisions are made and who gets to make them. Wow, there are so many things to pick up on there. I really like what you said about reproducing assumptions on egalitarian democratic ideals. The way I understand it, this means that because participants see themselves as having democratic ideals, they reproduce this or project this onto their life situation, in this case, the solar community. But do you know why solar is perceived as particularly inclusive? So research participants often refer to the sun and solar energy being um, as being particularly appealing to women because women are considered being closer to nature and nurture oriented. That there is not a lot of risk involved in terms of health hazards with solar energy and that there aren't as many controversies involved as there would be in other energy sources such as wind, for example, or because the technology is accessible and can be trusted. While some of these tropes, such as women's roles as primary caretakers and connection to nature are also invoked by environmental activists and eco-feminists, they can be dangerous as they naturalize relations and leave power and hierarchy unquestioned. As Karen Rignall so poignantly put it, there is also the fetishism of solar energy, especially its um, inexhaustibility, its cleanliness and immateriality. And this obscures the social relations necessary for its production. On the other hand, there is research backing that women are more concerned than men about a wide range of risks, not just environmental ones. Many studies do find that women tend to trust science and technology less than men. And others infer that trust in science and technology is negatively related to environmental concern. So indeed, in theory, solar energy does have the potential to attract women at a higher rate than other energy sources. Yeah, so if this is the case, why then are women excluded in practice? As I mentioned, women are a minority on the boards, and none of the communities we observed has a female chairperson. If we look at research from similar contexts, like Cornelia Fraune's work on renewable energy and engagement in Germany, we can see that Fraune makes a comparison to the German sports system where women are also underrepresented in executive bodies. Fraune tells us that the precondition of becoming a leader in a German sports organization is a long and continued commitment to sport and sports organizations. Extending this logic to energy communities, we can derive that a precondition of taking part in executive boards might be either experience with energy or with technology, which many women might lack due to the ongoing gender segregation of tech-related professions. Fraune also found that women in sport organizations also indicate the importance of female role models, which can also have a role to play here, that role models are actually necessary to attract greater participation on um, decision-making levels. That is a really interesting parallel. But what can be done about this? These are not issues merely related to energy communities. They are structural issues. And as I mentioned earlier, they are related to socially constructed gender roles and power, which permeates all aspects of our daily lives. But if I'm going to be more specific, we can see from related research that the gender segregation of the labor market seems to be of special importance. Expertise seems to be a prerequisite for participation on boards. A step could be to form boards carefully and inclusively. Energy projects based in local community partnerships have also been highly successful in engaging large segments of the population, which would require greater local engagement of these communities. 
There is also a persistent gender wealth gap in capitalist societies. Research findings suggest that women have to be provided with above average personal assets in order to engage in renewable electricity production at an equal rate to men. Likewise, finding information about these energy communities and opportunities to invest has also been incredibly difficult, even for us as researchers. So working on visibility and digital visibility could be a way of reaching out to a wider public. Thanks so much, Daniela, for being here. I think this has been a really valuable conversation and something that we on the podcast and our listeners need to reflect more on. Now, if our listeners wanted to follow your work in the future and learn more about the research that you're doing, where would they go to find more about you and your work? Thank you. Uh, yes, those who feel intrigued by this and want to know more can have a look at this webpage, uh, www.newcomersh. 2020.eu. The project is funded by Horizon 2020. As we close this episode, I want to return back to the symbolic strand of Christmas lights or the degree on the thermostat that we talked about at the beginning of the episode. With every choice that we make, we increase or decrease the demand on the energy system. However, we must not guilt ourselves for using energy, right? Of course, we have to have access to food and water and shelter and safety. But we should also consider renewable energy sources as well as its efficient use. We need to understand how our energy is produced and how we can take a more active role in its production. We want to thank Jenny Palm and Daniela Lasuruska for joining today's episode. This is an emerging research area, and we're proud to have these leading researchers at the IIIE. Now, Stephen, we covered a lot in today's episode. What did you learn today? Yeah, thanks for asking. So energy is not my field of expertise, but I do recognize how important it is in our daily lives. My partner and I, we've decided that we want to pay extra for 100% wind energy to power our home, but we're not involved in the decisions about our energy production, and we don't really know or see where our energy comes from. The notion of energy communities or energy cooperatives interests me a lot. I, I would love to learn more about these opportunities and maybe even consider joining one in the future. I'm grateful to you and our colleagues for sharing this with us and some of the resources to consider if we wanted to start or join an energy community ourselves. So I think that's what I'm going to take away from today's episode. What about you, Carolina? I think Daniela's research really inspired me. Gender does impact the experience of women being involved in energy production. I'm glad to know that the issues of gender, accessibility, and inequality are already being taken into consideration when designing the new decentralized energy system of the future. But it takes all of us to be aware of these experiences and to act as an ally to support energy justice and energy democracy. I totally agree, Carolina. Yeah, thanks so much. And if you, our listeners, want to learn more about today's podcast episode and receive extra materials about this topic, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter. You can sign up on our website, www.iiee.lu.se backslash podcast. And once again, we want to thank Jenny Palm and Daniela Lasuruska for joining today's episode. Also, thank you so much to our production assistant, Franz Liebertson. And of course, thank you for joining us on another episode of Advancing Sustainable Solutions. 
We have a new episode coming in January, but until then, we wish you wellness, strength, and peace during this holiday season and into the new year. Be safe, and until then, next time. Bye-bye. Bye.